The Reluctant Conformist Chapter 3 The Mariner A quote relevant to Chapter 3 by the Manxman, a sailor, from the book Moby Dick, written by Herman Melville, 1819-1891. We all see it, yes, sir. That don't make it real. At sea, one had to look the part. It was required to be outfitted with all the trappings of an engineer officer cadet. These Magnus purchased from one of the many cluttered and gloomy Liverpool gents outfitters specialising in maritime regalia. Shipboard life called for three distinct uniforms. Most costly was the double-breasted, brass-buttoned, black doe-skin uniform with lapel insignia and a badged peak cap, similar to that worn by officers in the Royal Navy, but with Merchant Navy purple-backed, gold-wired badging. This uniform was worn when sailing in the world's temperate zones. Uniform whites were adopted when entering tropical waters. The two white outfits consisted of short-sleeved shirts with breast pockets and with gold-wired shoulder epaulets, knee-length shorts, long socks, and white canvas leather-soled shoes, and finally, white covers for the crown of the peaked cap. The workplace get-up was white overalls and work boots for use in the engine room. The final item to complete the workaday wardrobe was a hussif, a sewing kit, an essential accessory for seafarers that has been so for hundreds of years. The complete regalia set him back two months' pay, and that was before he'd sailed deep sea. It wasn't only appearances that needed to be spruced up to meet the standards of the officer's dining saloon. The sailor's immune system also needed a booster. Before sailing to foreign parts, Magnus was vaccinated with a cocktail of potions to fend off a plethora of deadly diseases. He was pleased to benefit from the years of research into tetanus, cholera, yellow fever, typhoid and smallpox diseases which killed millions in the third-world countries with whom Ellerman Lines traded. Magnus's maiden voyage was aboard the diesel-powered city of Swansea, which sailed from Merseyside to India via the Mediterranean Sea, Suez Canal and Aden, a one-time strategic coal-bunkering port for the British Empire. In Aden, some of the crew purchased half-priced black-market Indian rupees from bumboat traders who boarded the ship to conduct business. Few of the Lasker or Goan crew bought bundles of rupees because they had already converted their meagre pay into gold sovereigns in Liverpool. Importing gold into India was illegal, so the smuggled sovereigns commanded premium rates when sold on the Indian black market. One ill-fated Goan steward had his entire twelve-month savings pocketed by a lucky Indian customs officer who discovered the seaman's stash of gold sovereigns hidden within the contents of a sugar bowl. Throughout the trip, Magnus's daily routine was to work two four-hour engine room watches. The seven-day-a-week, twenty-four-hour cycle started at midnight with the first watch. The middle watch followed at 4 a.m., and the morning watch started at 8 a.m., finishing at midday, from which time the cycle was repeated. Magnus usually worked with the second engineer on the middle watch, 4 o'clock in the morning till 8 o'clock, and 4 o'clock in the afternoon till 8 o'clock in the evening. When trading coastally, deep sea 
His working day was split between the engine room in the mornings and college correspondence study during the afternoons. The outbound cargo included a racehorse, which was housed in a temporary wooden stall on the after deck. Rusty, the deck officer cadet, was kept busy feeding and caring for the animal until it was offloaded in India. One morning, the daily routine of shipboard life was unexpectedly cheered by Rusty's howls of shock and pain. The down-in-the-mouth seasick nag had bitten Rusty on the neck whilst he was mucking out its box. The ship docked at Karachi and Bombay, and laid at anchor in the small port of Vasco de Gama, on the coast of what had been the Portuguese colony of Goa. Magnus was so stunned at witnessing the obscenity of social deprivation and inequality in the cities of the Indian subcontinent that he hoped never to return. On the voyage back to Europe, three memorable incidents occurred. The first was the near sinking of the Russian bulk carrier that followed immediately behind the city of Swansea in the northbound convoy through the Suez Canal. The damaged ship took on so much water that her decks were awash, and had she not been beached off-channel in the Bitter Lakes, part of the Suez Canal, the ship could have sunk, blocking one of the world's busiest shipping channels. The second incident happened whilst Magnus's ship was battling mountainous seas in the Bay of Biscay, whilst corkscrewing and surfing past a battered, straight-funneled Liberty ship. During World War II, 2,710 Liberty ships were prefabricated across America and assembled at shipyards along the eastern seaboard. They were built to transport essential supplies of munitions, fuel and food across the Atlantic to the besieged British. The ships had a very short life expectancy because wolf packs of German U-boats lined up to blast Allied ships out of the water as they steamed in convoy across the Atlantic Ocean. The Rust Bucket Liberty ship was a miracle of survival. So underpowered, she slid backwards as the massive swell moved beneath her aged hull. The ship's existence wasn't so much a testament to the vessel's exceptional durability as to the age-old maxim that some ship owners send sailors to sea in death traps, so long as there's a profit to be had. The final and most pleasing event happened a few days later, after the storm had blown itself out, leaving the sea relatively calm. Following a message from the deck officer on watch, Magnus exchanged the cacophonous racket of the excruciatingly hot engine room for the cool, fresh air of the wing bridge, and was astonished at the sight that greeted him. As far as the eye could see, forward, aft, port, and starboard, the sea was full of dolphins bearing north. Not pods of a dozen or so each, but a shoal that may have held tens of thousands, an unforgettable sight, about which, when later spoken of, most people remain sceptical. In January 1963, Magnus joined the steam turbine-powered, semi-refrigeration ship City of Winchester, outbound for Australia. She sailed from Merseyside, took on bunkers at Las Palmas, then headed for Durban in apartheid South Africa. Off the coast of Angola, the Laskan Dexarang, the Indian bosun, was crushed beneath a bulky cargo hatch door from which he'd removed the hinge pins, allowing the door to fall as the ship rolled. He died of his injuries several days later. The Laskan crew refused to allow their headman to be buried at sea, which was the fate of most European crew who died at sea. So the ship altered course to put the body ashore in Walvis Bay, 
Southwest Africa, later to become the independent state of Namibia. When sailing by Cape Town, Magnus escaped the hot, humid engine room to work in the fresh air on deck. In the bright sunlight, with Table Mountain as the backdrop, he witnessed a never-to-be-forgotten sight. With mighty force, a sleek black-and-white whale reached the ocean surface to soar full length into the warm air before gravity regained control to send the leviathan crashing back below the waves. Gravity remains an unsolved riddle, even though everything exists within its orbit. Science believes it to be the force that bends space-time, ignites stars, forms galaxies, and holds the solar system in place. Magnus knew it to be the force of nature that held his feet on the deck and prevented the flying whale jetting ever upwards into outer space. He was often heartened to realize that in a world awash with technical experts, there persists something as commonplace as gravity, which remains an elusive secret not fully understood by a single living soul. Perhaps gravity remains the most all-pervading, yet oblique, of the known, unknowns. The final African ports of call for the city of Winchester, before heading east for Australia, were Byra and Lorenzo Marx in Portuguese Mozambique. We'll be out of touch with land for the next two weeks, stated the Geordie second engineer to Magnus. If you have any medical issues, you'd better get them attended to right now, before we sail. Stranger should mention that, Sec, Magnus replied. In the last few days, eating toast or anything hard hurts my gums. He was sent to a Portuguese colonial medical centre, and there learned that he'd contracted a gum-rotting complaint, possibly from smoking the disgusting, nicotine-loaded, saltpeter-impregnated, duty-free ship cigarettes. On the other hand, it could have been the traditional and agonising tooth-loosening scourge of mariners over the centuries. Scurvy. Once again, Providence had chosen to intervene on his behalf, but only in the nick of time had the gum-burning solution to cure the ailment not been prescribed. It's probable that the ship's alcoholic purser and acting medic would have had to extract all Magnus's teeth without anaesthetic or antibiotics before they sighted the Australian coast. In some quarters, during the 1930s, it was regarded as a chic 21st birthday present to have all one's teeth removed and replaced by a made-to-measure set of false perfect pearls. Spirited application of the prescribed gum-burning solution allowed Magnus to forego this once fashionable idiocy. The city of Winchester routinely traded between Australia and the east coast of the USA and Canada. These were her home waters, and members of the crew who regularly sailed aboard the ship had friends in most Australian ports on whom to call, whilst the newcomers to the trading route spiced up shipboard life by inviting young nurses aboard for parties. Nearly all Magnus's meagre salary went on supporting these lively get-togethers. The ship was designed to carry both dry and refrigerated cargo, in Brisbane, she loaded large consignments of frozen lamb and goat carcasses bound for Jamaica. In the early 1960s, there was no containerization, so the frozen meat had to be manhandled from the refrigerated abattoir store to be hoisted aboard using the ship's derricks. The stevedores who did this work were dressed from head to foot in thick 
brown felt overalls, gloves, boots, and Russian-style head coverings with cheek flaps. When the bulkily dressed labourers emerged from the icebox store into the tropical heat carrying frozen goat carcasses, they gave off billowing clouds of white vapour as though they may have been a tribe of smouldering abominable snowmen returning home from a chilly but successful hunt. It's mystifying how the mind may selectively cull and rehash experiences. Magnus's only clear recollection of the numerous ports his ship put into along the east coast of the United States and Canada were the many bridges they sailed beneath, none, however, more impressive than Australia's Sydney Harbour Bridge. He did, however, have one enduring memory of New York. A photograph on page two of a tabloid newspaper showed a murdered gangster dangling from the driver's car door. He had five bullets in the head. The sixth bullet missed and embedded itself in the wall of a bank across the street. The gruesome snap nestled comfortably behind the image of Pope John XIII, whose smiling face covered page one. The pontiff also died the previous day. Another vivid memory of the USA was the skull and crossbones sign in the Savannah, Georgia post office, which read, Beware! Moonshine kills! Brisbane was the first port of call in Australia after the long return voyage across the Pacific Ocean from the USA. In order to recommence college studies back in South Shields, Magnus and a fellow cadet, Nigel, had to sign on aboard a homeward-bound ship. The new ship, the city of Perth, was berthed in Melbourne, 1,500 miles away. Their transfer required the wonderful overnight sleeper train journeys from Brisbane to Sydney, then onward the following night to Melbourne. The young travel agent who arranged the trip and saw the two cadets safely aboard the trains at South Brisbane Railway Station was John Brew an Australian with Manx forebears, who, through an inconceivable sequence of events, would later reappear in Magnus's life as his brother-in-law. Magnus's shipmate came from a musical family. His parents had met during the 1930s aboard the luxury transatlantic liner The Empress of Britain, aboard which Nigel's mother had played the piano, and his father the violin. Prior to seaboard life, Nigel's mother had played the piano at the silent films, at a time when live music was used to enrich the audience's emotional response to the action on the screen. The return trip to Europe from Australia started badly. Life aboard the city of Perth was staggeringly uncomfortable, as the 8,000-ton ship pounded and shuddered through the immense ocean swells across the Great Australian Bight. When the ship passed over the crest of an unusually mountainous lump of water, it surfed down the backside to smash into the trough below. At the base, beneath an enormous wall of salt water sprayed skyward by the cleaving bow, the ship bounced, judded, and groaned alarmingly. There was no respite. No sooner had the vessel righted itself than she was heaved aloft by the relentless onslaught of the next mighty surge of green water which started the roller coaster ride all over again. During excessively heavy weather, it's not unknown for the steelwork of unseaworthy, badly designed or poorly constructed ships to be ripped apart, causing the vessel to founder and sink. 
long legal actions often result and may be difficult to resolve when evidence is hidden beneath the sea where the only eyewitnesses have long since become seafood.